This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. Golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in Standard Orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore, and during a Q&A... Given at the Varsity Theater in Ashland, Oregon, a few years back, where Harv Bennett was being honored at a special screening of Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, he talked openly about his uh, relationship with Gene Roddenberry, or lack thereof. Uh, <laughs> this was his quote. I did not like Gene Roddenberry, and he did not like me. I found him to be egocentric and difficult to work with. That does not diminish his contribution, his genius, and that special ability that Gene had which I would call promotional genius. He knew how to take things and make them instantaneously important. Powerful quote. Very powerful quote. So, as you might have guessed by Zach's opening quote here and in, in, in research that we've been doing, we're going to talk today about the relationship between Gene Roddenberry and Harv Bennett the great bird of the galaxy to the gentleman who arguably saved Star Trek and made it um, popular uh, for new series and so forth to to continue. And I thought it was um, very apropos that you launched us that way, Zach. Now, I know you've been a longtime Star Trek fan, as I have, and we've read many books and we've seen... um, you know, the actors talk about their relationship with Roddenberry, the producers from the original series... Uh, we had chaos on the bridge with Roddenberry. You know, th- I don't think the point of this is to really talk about bashing Gene Roddenberry because that that would not be appropriate, and that's not what we're all about. But we're talking about two very powerful, iconic uh, men that had everything to do, but in two different areas, I guess, of the success of Star Trek. How would you encapsulate it? Well, it's tough because Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek. Like you would not have Star Trek without him. But as we've seen, you know, throughout the years in, in Hollywood and television and movies, sometimes the, the great ideas men that spur things off aren't necessarily the guys that, that you want in the trenches every day. Uh, now, when Star Trek first started, Gene Roddenberry had his hand on everything. Like, he was rewriting everyone's scripts, and it drove everyone insane. But if you look back at it, you know, if had he not done that, Star Trek might not have 
found the uh, cohesiveness and the voice that it did so soon. I mean, the first season of Star Trek is a great season of television, and it has a very consistent voice. I mean, when it first starts, it, there, there are a few bumpy uh, finding, settling in, finding finding what it what its voice is and what it wants to be. But overall, besides the little continuity things we joke about, uh, the, the, there is the uh, Star Trek is Star Trek from the jump. You know, even looking back at the cage, it's Star Trek from the jump. So when you have somebody like that, who he is single-handedly responsible for making Star Trek what it is, and it's true at the time, no one knew Star Trek better than him. It was his brainchild, and yes, he had a you know he had a great staff of people that came in. Gene Kuhn came in, contributed just as much. T.C. Fontana, Robert Justman, all these guys. But Gene was the final say. So when you have somebody like that who is so used to to having the final say, uh, you know, he had battles with the network. But all that to say, his his final, you know, Gene Roddenberry approved stamp was on everything that came out in Star Trek. So you fast forward years later, and it was the same deal with Star Trek The Motion Picture, you know? Uh the, the studio was like, oh, we're bringing back Star Trek. We got to bring back Gene Roddenberry. He had built up in the in the gap between the original series and the movies. He had really built up this fandom. He had gone to conventions. He had you know embellished stories, and he'd really you know gotten gotten off on the on the on the fandom. You know, I mean, because they they loved him and they worshipped him. You know, as the creator of Star Star Trek was people's religion, and he was their their god. You know, <laughs> so to speak, right? So uh, when this uh, when you know Paramount did the motion picture, uh, it was written by Gene Roddenberry, right? That was that was his Star Trek in purest form, right? It's like if you look at the Cage, you look at Star Trek the motion picture, you look at like the first season of Next Gen, right? That is Roddenberry unchecked uh, when it comes to Star Trek, and it was not received well. So clearly, a change needed to be made, and then Paramount brings in Harv Bennett. And there's going to be conflict there because you're like, whoa, 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 I created this thing and you're handing over to this guy over here. Like, and, you know, regardless, and like you said, not to Gene Ryberry bash here, but like, we're, you know, that, that's where I'm trying to kind of contextualize what his attitude towards Harv Bennett was this whole time. It's like, I, I made Star Trek, you know, <laughs> like it's like in, uh, you know, the scene in Spider-Man, uh, the first Spider-Man Tony mm-hmm. McGuire where they're going to kick Norman Osborn off the board. He's like, how can you do this to me? I started this company. You know how much I sacrifice? That's how I can imagine the internalization of Gene Roddenberry when they uh, when they kick him upstairs, right? For uh, they did kick him kicked upstairs, upstairs yeah. right? Uh, for mm-hmm. that was the term uh, for Star Trek Two onward. They make him an executive consultant, and you know he was a he was a prideful guy, but he had accomplished a lot, and I think that that pride is not entirely misplaced. You know, uh, he had he had defined this this cultural icon. So I bring in Harv Bennett, and he's great too, and I think that. Harv Bennett's success actually fueled Roddenberry's dislike of him even more because he had failed. He could be like, oh, well, see, I'm Star Trek. No one else knows. But when this outsider comes in to great success, uh, that uh, that already you know fans the flame of, of Roddenberry's fires of discontent with this guy, and that kind of sets up the the decade-long you know rivalry, if you will, between the two of them. Yeah, I think with Roddenberry, he was, he was a very creative person. Um, he was known as a very tough guy, um, a cop, right? Mm-hmm. A, a pilot uh, in World War II. He had a um, he had survived a, a devastating plane crash. He had, he had seen a lot of things, and then you know, next thing he knows, he goes from police officer to writer because that's what he always wanted to do. <laughs> and he and he pulled it off. Uh, and he and he had a series, a somewhat successful series called The Lieutenant, uh, 
And then, you know, here he is with, with Star Trek and, you know, he, he finds a, a niche, I guess, to say the least. It was Wagon Train to the Spar Stars. It was Horatio Hornblower in space. And, you know, he, he put himself all in to make it as successful as possible. And very interestingly, you know, when Star Trek's quality to a degree started to diminish and it was banished to the 10 p.m. You know, time slot on NBC for season three, he wasn't around very much anymore. Right? He kind of walked away from it. And from what I understand from a couple of the biographies I've read, not his autobiography, but biographies, so it's, it's secondhand, that you know, he, he kind of pulled the chute on it. I think he was exhausted with it. Uh, and then was looking forward, I guess, maybe to to try you know, different series and, and give his hand and, and writing something else as, as a creative person. One of the things that definitely occurred is, you know, he never really was that successful outside of Star Trek after Star Trek. And what I mean by that is he had the animated series um, right around the same time as the animated series Back in as early as 1972, they had they being Paramount had asked Gene to take a swag at perhaps you know making a, a Star Trek movie uh, because you know in syndication Star Trek caught on fire and you started having the conventions and the fandom just started to really um, start to spark. It it hadn't rain it it hadn't become like a full fledged forest fire, but it was growing. And he came up with some very interesting scripts, even before In Thy Image. Very interesting scripts. But they were very, very deep in nature, you know, finding religion. He actually, you know, his first original script kind of had a machine that was wound up to be God, and then God, it actually transformed the Jesus Christ. But in the sense, God became the bad guy. It was yeah. very bold <laughs> stuff, but would never get by any censors. Just fascinating understanding where he was coming from. And... But but he was Star Trek, and when the Paramount Network was going to be launched and he was brought in for Phase 2, they did a lot of work on, you know, creating the new character of Zahn. At that time, Roddenberry and, and Nimoy's relationship was permanently severed. It's because of the blooper rail that he had put out, and Nimoy didn't like that at all. And then using his likeness, he didn't like that right. at all. So, he you know, he goes into Phase 2. They're moving, they're coming along, and then Paramount has second thoughts kiboshes the Paramount Network, says, hold on, we'll make it a movie. They make it a movie, and it is nothing but just the, the, the stories of making the motion picture just were, it was horrible. It was, the environment was horrible. There was a lot of battles between Harold Livingston and Gene Roddenberry. Livingston actually came up with the original script back and forth and changed the day. Every day they would change the script, Roddenberry. You know, it was like he couldn't, he couldn't function unless he had total control. And control in the sense that if somebody else was working on the project, he had to have his way with mm -hmm. it. He just he just wasn't willing to let go and kind of share in it the way that he did when the TV show was running. So to your point, he was definitely had the final say and did a lot of rewrites. But he also allowed a lot of people to contribute to um to the to the original series. But on this motion picture, this mul this huge multi-million dollar picture, he really struggled. And uh, they were very lucky that it made money. 
but it obviously it, it, it wasn't a big hit with critics. And that's when the whole paradigm shift happened where it's like, if we're going to make Star Trek, we, we can't afford to spend 40, $42 million to do it. we got to find another way. And they brought in, obviously, Harv Bennett. And I think what's interesting is Harv Bennett has a lot of success across multiple different TV shows and TV movies. And, you know, he was, he was a little bit more of a, um, a specialist. He knew how to frame a story. He knew how to do it um, quickly. He knew how to do it as, uh, I guess, as inexpensively as possible. And, and, and Paramount brought him in because of that skill set, which I think is, is very Yeah, neat. he worked on Six Million Dollar Man, The Mod Squad, The Bionic Woman. So just a, a really good yeah, TV pedigree at that time. And that's what they were looking at doing, shifting Star Trek to a TV that's right. movie. That's why they went to Harvard Bennett. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they kept going back, and will it be? Will it be a TV movie? Will it be a motion picture? There's a, you know, but they 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 definitely pulled in a a TV producer into the world of movies. Ironically, they essentially did that with Roddenberry too. <laughs> very, very true. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is true because they say, oh, you know, they people never really back then. It was rare for them to live to leave what they were specialists in. Usually you get pigeonholed. At least that's what they say about Hollywood back in right. the day. So it's interesting, right? So here, here comes, here comes Bennett, and you know has a has fresh eyes, fresh ideas. But that's when you started to really understand how Gene's view of Star Trek really changed from his initial um, creative. You know, I mean, uh, when he created Star Trek originally, his view was very different, right? Wagon Train to the Stars, Captain Horatio Hornblower in Space, all this stuff, action, exciting, optimistic, all those things. Bennett watches all 79 episodes, comes up with Star Trek's two premise, you know, by, by pulling in Space Seed, um, making it um, paramilitary. And the first notes he gets back from Roddenberry, who, as you said, been kicked upstairs because they didn't want him to have control, so they, it's the funniest thing. They had to promote him to take that control away, which is bizarre. And all his notes are like, well, well Star Trek isn't, isn't the military. And of course, <laughs> Bennett's like, uh, it's a Navy ship in space. You have admirals, captains, lieutenants. Sure it is. We don't have conflicts. He's like, yeah, you do. <laughs> they're, they're, they're having bar fights, uh, phaser battles. Um, there's some great stories, but, but, but sure. It, it was just funny because the, the, this, the, the back and forth between the two men, it's like from a person who just watched all 79 episodes and the person who created it, there was a very huge change in the philosophical approach to Star right. Trek from Gene Roddenberry, uh, at, at that point. And ironically, Harv Bennett was pulling it back to its roots. Very, very fascinating dichotomy that occurred there yeah the thing about harv bennett is he was, he was pretty brutally honest too he had no reverence for star trek he just saw it as just another project to work on when he first got started so he was very right you know brutally honest but when they called him in to ask him like hey harv we're thinking about putting you on star trek what, did you see the first one what'd you think and he's like well i thought it was boring <laughs> and they're like well can you make a better movie and he's like absolutely i can make a better movie <laughs> like he had no he was very confident in himself <laughs> and they're like yeah. well can you make it for less than you know what use 42 45 million dollars he's like i can make i can make like six movies for that 
<laughs> you know, and and they did. You know, look at look at how what the the budgets were for the next four movies compared to motion picture. And uh, you need a fresh approach like that sometimes, you know. I mean, there, there's something to be said for. I mean, it's the same thing with Nick Meyer. He had, he didn't put Star Trek on a pedestal. He just analyzed it like he would any other project, and and just got got the best out of it, you know. And that's interesting. The Harv Harv Bennett and Nicholas Meyer both, I guess, being seen as outsiders from Gene Roddenberry, like they their creative collaborations or lack thereof, you know, over the course of the movies were notorious, you know. Um, because it just could not see eye to eye, and and I, it, it's tough because you know I think we've all worked with people like this, and sometimes maybe we've been people like this ourselves, where you know you have certain projects that are your baby, and like you're like I want it to be this way, and the people you're working with, or or the person that you know is doing this to you, they just can't can't let go of the fact that like they uh, just they're always tweaking everything, and it's like oh just do this or this or this, like something that you know the. Everyone can, like, you have a whole room of people. Everybody agrees. Oh, yeah, that was great. Loved it. But that, you know, that guy, he's like, I don't know. Like, here's a list of 15 things they don't like about it. And I think we need to change it. <laughs> and and they're, you know, in charge. And there we go. So I think that was a lot going on with Roddenberry's uh, constant notes to these guys as they made the movies. Well, again, he, um, you know, like when you're kicked upstairs and you've got a new guy doing things, it's, it's, it's very, very hard, I think. You know, and, you know, let's, let's give... You know, Roddenberry, some credit for, you know, <laughs> I love the motion picture. Oh, do you, um, Ken? <laughs> yeah, I know you might have heard that. And and for all the right reasons, it's structure and, and, and all of that stuff. But, you know, when I, when I read about all the things that went on behind it, it's like it's amazing that movie ever got made. It's amazing that, um, you know, it, 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 it even got produced within the timelines because of, of all the changes. But... What's what's funny to me is that there's a huge amount of ego in Hollywood. I, I think that in general society, there's a ton more humility. I mean, for whatever reason, in the entertainment business, and you're kind of in the entertainment business yourself. <laughs> you've met a lot of you've met a lot of people. I mean, we we we've met all of our castmates and friends and things like that on Star Trek at conventions and stuff, but. You know, there's a ton of ego there. And it just seemed to me that reading it from the outside, the exchanges that went back and forth between, let's say, Roddenberry and Bennett or Roddenberry and Nick Meyer or whatever, there was never any quarter given. You know, they were direct. They were nasty. Um, Same thing between Livingston and Roddenberry Mm. when they were making the motion picture. And... You know, it was almost like, you know, deal with it. There was, there was absolutely now. I not you know, Gene obviously had a reputation, no doubt, but it just seemed to me like there was there was never any kind of um, attempt to pull him in at all. It was just oh, he's just gonna he's gonna be the critic. Well, nobody just likes a critic. But I also understand once you give him an inch, he'd take right. a mile, right? If, <laughs> so. You run, you run that. It's a true so no-win scenario. I, I always, <laughs> it, it can be. You, you know, I always look at how do we diplomatically work through our differences, right? And that's that's me. That's 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 kind of. You're always looking for that lever. If there's if there's a way to get somebody to kind of share in what you want to do and develop that vision together, then, you know, it can work. But in Hollywood, it just seems like it's always a struggle. Mm-hmm. The 
the sense of entitlement and the egos amongst these these folks is incredible. Now, ironically, Harv Bennett never had that reputation, but yet he was very direct with with Roddenberry himself. Yeah, and I, I think and that so, that a lot of that has to do with him just being like, "Hey, man, I, I don't see, I don't put you on a pedestal like." these 100,000 fans at this last convention you were at, you know, you're, you're just a guy that I work with. So I'm just going to tell you my mind. And, and, and you need that. You know, you look at a guy like George Lucas and the way, what Star Wars ended up as like with the prequels when he had complete control. Right. And, uh, he mm-hmm. lost key collaborators around him like, uh, Gary Kurtz, he, who produced, uh, Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. He did not come back for Return of the Jedi and he did not come back for mm-hmm. the prequel trilogy. And you can see, there's a definite shift between the first two Star Wars movies and Return of the Jedi, and then a huge shift in the prequel trilogy. And I think, you know, George Lucas, Gene Roddenberry, similar. You know, very brilliant guys, created amazing universes, uh, mm-hmm. was right there touching every single item uh, at the inception, um, surrounded themselves with, you know, capable, uh, skilled people, professionals that, you know, he could trust to do you know, to do the franchise right. Um, but then, you, you know, you go down the line there and and, and there's big there's big gaps, you know, between between the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy of Star Wars, right? Star Wars became this, you know, much like Star Trek, became religion right, for people, right? Uh, when you had these, you know, and, and it was the same thing between the cancellation of the original series and the production of the movies. You know, got this big gap. So the creators, you know, all I hear about is that they've been uh, praised, been you know lashed upon them, you know. So they already, you got it. You have to have a certain amount of ego to you know get somewhere in Hollywood in this industry. You, you, you it, uh, to some level, you do. So you have mm-hmm. that, right? And then you get all this other stuff showered on you, like for <laughs> for a decade in between. So when it gets time to get back to work. You have a different mindset than when you did when you were just a struggling guy trying to put things work, always questioning everything, always like, okay, guys, let's get together here. Let's let's figure this out together as a team. I, I don't know how to do it, so let's figure it out together. But then you know, you, you you crack you crack the code, you get successful. You're like, oh well, psh, I got this. I am Star Trek. I am Star Wars. I'm these other guys, you know. And then you surround yourself with more yes men. And I think you know ultimately that's why. Uh, you know, guys like David Gerald's relationship with Roddenberry degraded because, you know, Roddenberry had gotten the band back together for Next Gen in the 80s, late 80s, and uh, he didn't want to be challenged with stuff anymore. He just wanted to kind of say, hey, here's the way it's going to be, and that's why eventually all those DC Fontana, Robert Justman, David Gerald, they all just kind of, they slowly left Next Gen because they were just like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. This is not this is not the Star Trek we worked on back in the day anymore, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it just, it, it's, the it, it's, it's, it's weird. <laughs> Yeah, because it sounded like, from the things that I had read as well, that when they came together for Phase 2, and a lot of those same people were pulled into Phase 2, that the relationships were pretty good, that they were churning out some decent mm-hmm. scripts. You know, it didn't it didn't quite have that um, animosity. Certainly wasn't anything like um, it was the first couple of years on the next Wacky generation. doodle. Uh, not a <laughs> wacky doodle, yeah. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, at least I didn't hear any complaints. You know, I've read a lot of what what David Gerald had had to say about TNG, but not so much about Phase mm-hmm. Two. So it's you know they they got a number of scripts together. I think the most of the plus when you're talking with TV, you've got to get a lot of scripts out, right? You There's know, a lot. Yeah, you, it's it's, you it's a lot more stressful. You, you, it's like, hey guys, 
we got 22, yeah, and, and 22 t- scripts we got to get out. That's right. And that, that, that's a big change to, to writing a movie. And, you, you know, the, the relationship that Roddenberry had with Livingston, who wrote In Thy Image, which became essentially Star Trek The Motion Picture with some, a lot of tweaks. I mean, probably more tweaks than you could ever possibly count. Um, it, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole dynamic just went in a completely different direction because it became a movie. And because it was a movie, I think the egos even grew, grew larger. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I say it all the time, I've, I've never walked an inch in another person's shoes, so I, I, I can't speak from, from experience when it comes to these types of things, you know, and how it impacts or what somebody else was thinking. But when you, when you read about all the interactions between, it just seems like it's, it's a Hollywood titan fest uh, whenever these things happen. But I will say from a creative point of view, you know, it's, it's interesting even to me how most, you know, singers or artists, let's say artists, are so much more creative and so much more successful in their youth. Mm. And it's, it's very, very hard for talented, creative people to keep it going for a long time. Now, you know, they can sing well forever, for example, but they're singing hits that are 20, 30 years old a lot of times. You don't see a lot of hits from people as, as they get older. I'm talking, you know, creators. Right. Even, even in the, the writing world, that's, that's very difficult too. You know, your screenwriters be around, but you'll see, you know, some people, they just hit it out of the park and then, then they really struggle. And it's probably very similar for a guy like Roddenberry who had a very, I guess, life-changing view of what Star Trek was. I mean, even in his own head, what he created in the 60s, he would describe very differently in the 80s and the 90s, it, just interestingly. Yeah, I mean, because right? back in the day, like you said, he did The Lieutenant, he did Star Trek, he tried to sneak in Assignment yeah. Earth at the end of Star Trek. <laughs> you know, he was just going on to the next job. And it was, I mean... It, they recognized the importance of what they were doing and they thought they were making a good, solid, entertaining uh, television show with a lot of stuff to say, like commentary, social commentary. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you fast forward to the 80s and it's like, oh, well, we were, you know, it becomes this great, grand, planned out mythology, you know, and, and right. it's this kind of like uh, uh, philosophy, you know, that needs to be followed when it's yeah. like, hey, man, we were just, this is this is a fun adventure show with some good social commentary, not like, a blueprint to live your life kind of stuff going on and and <laughs> well many many people that that became including mm-hmm. me to a large degree uh got caught up in that that tv mm-hmm. show after seeing the movie and you know I, that that's how i approached mm-hmm. it well yeah but that but that's I, what I i'm saying lost. like everybody like he goes yeah. to these conventions and he sees the the fruits of his labor right it's like oh wow sure. well, i i guess i really did tap into some you know existential mm-hmm. truth or something like that and uh, and then you get the whole and th- and that's where I'm saying with that is that then you come into whole like the evolved humanity of the next generation, and it's like okay let's take a step back from that in my opinion because the the characters were less less real at the beginning you know Star Trek the original series people had flaws there was conflict between the characters I mean this is the evolution of the Roddenberry box right where like the Starfleet mm-hmm. personnel can't argue with each other it's like what like did, have you seen the original series so it's it's just interesting how his mindset shifted so so radically. When he himself, you know, wrote a lot of these episodes and and was so intimately involved in, in the definition of what is Star Trek, and that's that's where the huge that's where a huge uh, point of contention 
went between him and Harv Bennett. Like like you were saying, Harv Bennett was like, "Hey, I just I just watched all these episodes, <laughs> so I I feel like I know what the original series was, and you're telling me it wasn't, and you were there, Gene. I don't understand." So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's 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 just fascinating. I mean, I we're we're very fortunate. Blessed might be the might be a good word that these two guys um, did what they did uh, for very different reasons. And it's ironic, right? Here, here's the irony of it all. So after the motion picture, in comes Bennett. He creates Star Trek two, three, and four, right? He essentially, I wouldn't say he discovers Nick Meyer, but he essentially puts him does. on the map. I mean, Nick, yeah, puts him on the map, right? Nick, the time after time, um, you know, ten percent solution, the, the, all the thing, you know, all that. Uh, the seven percent solution, Sherlock. Seven, seven. <laughs> sorry, that's right. Seven percent. Yeah. Hey, it's late here. Seven uh, <laughs> percent solution, and and some sequels to that, by the way. And you know, it, the, he pulls him up. This guy comes in, and they, they. they they find the the best formula about the characters. Even even Bennett recognized it wasn't about the effects, you know, and being pulled along for the ride. It's like these characters have to drive it, drive the plots, and he he understand the dynamic of the of the big three. And there you go, you get you get three movies in a row, right? That were just beloved. Star, no Star Trek at its it. best. I mean, that's what I I say. Like to start, Nimoy, yeah. Meyer, and Bennett behind the scenes were the best creative team i don't know the whole franchise history mm-hmm. and so here's the irony star trek gets so successful the movies get more popular star trek 4 becomes the highest grossing movie at that time and then it has universal um acceptance right mm-hmm. it wasn't just a star trek film it wasn't just the trekkies going to see it because the money that that star trek 2 made it didn't make as much, ironically, as the motion picture as far as earnings at the box office. But its profit was way up because it only cost, what, $10, 11000000 million to make it. Same thing with three. And then four comes along. They upped the budget a bit. But then that was over $100 million. It kills it. And then all of a sudden, Star Trek's on fire. Hey, something that happened in the set. We, we, you know, we want to do a Star Trek TV show. Well, there's Roddenberry. All right, take this mm-hmm. thing, run with it. You know, it's almost like, here you go, Gene. We're showing you the formula to make it successful, mm-hmm. and he went in a completely <laughs> different, different way. With yeah. It, right. And he was so pissed off. I think, at least, that's the impression and things that I've read. So, you know, by the way, he made a lot of money off Harv Bennett's movies. Yeah. A lot of money, right? Um, in fact, when he was, um. Uh, assigned and started writing uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and putting it together, part of his contract allowed him to go in and kind of audit the books, and he found that he was shorted like millions from, from in earnings. And he got all that money from that, too. It's fascinating. <laughs> so, you know, Bennett is largely successful for giving Gene a whole nother shot, which starts off with you know this 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 brilliant new show that that struggles because of the the show bible that Roddenberry puts together but eventually it takes off and it's it's arguably still probably the most beloved of all the mm-hmm. series i'm guessing right it's up there tng is very very popular and it's a brilliant yeah, show to, to your show. point there though you're right he picked up 
like where the motion picture left off and just ignored all the Star Trek in between. Like the the reason that he's there for the success of two, three, and four, completely ignored. Let's go back to the motion picture because there's so much of Phase Two and the motion picture in Next Gen. Riker and Troy are Decker and Ilya. You know, Zahn is mm. Data. Basically, if you look yeah. at those those scripts, um, and just the and, and yeah, even the even the look of everything, you know, uh, the, just the it just the the feel of it all is just so different. Um, mm-hmm. And then it kind of settles in and evolves in the first couple years. Now, I you know, you and I both we really we love Next Gen. We actually you know, appreciate the first couple seasons more than a lot of other people might. Um, but the fact is that, like, as you said, that's perfect. Like, they showed in the blueprint of, like, here, people love this kind of Star Trek. They want more of this. And he's like, okay, thanks, but I'm going to do this instead. <laughs> it, is, it is ironic as hell. But, you know, they had a, they didn't know it, but they had a, a symbiotic relationship. I think it's, I, I would say if there's, there's any tragedy in this, um, is that Meyer gets, a ton of credit, is well-loved, wrote a lot of books. Um, Harv Bennett, who worked his ass off saving this franchise, holistically gets very little fanfare. Even Now, now he passed away about the same time Leonard Nimoy yeah, did. Yeah, that got lost in the shadow of, of Nimoy's it, passing. It got lost in the shadow, but even still, um, I mean, obviously, when, when Leonard Nimoy passed, we were all gut punched. It was horrible. Um, but I felt it pretty solid too when I read about Bennett, and then I read how humble he was, and he was living, I guess, up in Washington State, just him and his wife, very dignified, you know. And he, I guess, that's how he always comported himself. He he was always just a gentle, a gentle man, a gentle person, outside, I guess, of the the Hollywood <laughs> stuff where he was fighting with Gene, but. You know, even Star Trek Five, he was like, "Oh, this thing's gonna be a nightmare." But Shatner begged him to, you know, come back to help, whatever, and he did it. You know, he, and he knew it wasn't that good. He knew it was, and he, and he really worked hard to try to to try to save it. Uh, and I give him credit for that. And then, you know, he he pretty much got kicked down the road. Um, and you know, for all the wonderful attributes you hear about Nimoy. <laughs> no, he didn't get along with Gene, and by the time he was done with um, Star Trek Four, whatever, he was having his differences with Harv right. Bennett. You know, his own success as being a director that's, kind of put a wedge. That's in creative, man. I'll tell you, like, you know, like, like you were saying, yeah. I, I'm in this industry, and that's how it is. You know, you get creatives. It's really hard to find creative alignment with people who are strong-willed and have a vision. You know, unless you can convince mm-hmm. people like of your vision, you got to share the vision. And get people on board, and then you're good. And you're going to have some scuffles as you go through the process. But if, if you can't sell people on your vision, or if they're, if, if they're convinced that, like, I don't know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, and I'm sick of his input, and, like, I know what I'm doing over here. Get away from me. Like, stop looking over my shoulder. You know, that kind of stuff can build yeah. up resentment. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that, that's ironic how, how, how that happened. And then, yeah, and then Bennett finds himself... Well, he, he more or less just leaves after five. I don't think there was like he didn't officially get fired or whatever because he he had suggested the Starfleet Academy script after five, and then when Paramount was like, "Well, it's the twenty fifth anniversary. We want to actually celebrate the the old cast while they're still you know viable to start in a film, but we'll get to years later, Harv. We'll, we'll get that's a good script. We'll get that later." And he was like, "Oh, well, you guys aren't going to get to that. You're just telling me that." So he just at that point he just stepped away and and. uh 
you know, as as interesting oh, as that script yeah. is, I'm, I'm glad they I'm glad they went with Star Trek Six. Uh, and two, what was the thing was uh, the the outline of Six. I, I'm sorry, the outline of the Starfleet Academy movie hmm. was really mm-hmm. cool because it would have had obviously you know the the, the first adventures and a lot of. Oh nine, mm. arguably very <laughs> took a very lot from much Bennett's so. And he actually had some. Bennett yeah. had some issues with that. <laughs> he did, yeah. He, he you know, and, and I know that you know Paramount owned what he wrote, so that's work one for thing, hire. There was no... That was that term that remember a few episodes back, guys. I couldn't remember yeah. our friends at the Babel Conference. Let me know. work for hire. So that's work what it hire. is. But that's yeah. They, they, he had no really uh, ground to stand on about that. Yeah, and but again, that was the the ego thing, right? I mean, a lot of it was the 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 original cast um, had beautiful scenes, very poignant moments, uh, but they were turning it over to this young cast that could have carried the movies even further, right? They could have kept the, it. It would have been like they wound up doing in the long term anyway, mm-hmm. which was going backwards and reliving those adventures with a younger team. It, it would have been fascinating. I, I don't know if it would have taken off with all the TV shows at that point, but yeah, it's like is that, would really that be did... a stopgap to the next gen movies? Who knows? Um, yeah, and then it became you know kind of the uh, you know the Nimoy versus Bennett thing almost uh, for for Star Trek mm-hmm. Six when you know they pulled they pulled Nimoy back. But at any rate, I, I do think that when you when you look at at Roddenberry, um, what he did, what he put together. Um, the the foundational aspects of the original series, even the movies to a large degree, the look, you know, the the new Enterprise, arguably still um, a lot of people's most favorite mm-hmm. ship. All those things he had a big piece of, and then TNG, yeah, it had a rough start. Yes, its premise was a pretty tricky one to sustain, and it did not. Luckily, it did not sustain. <laughs> but then, you know. They realize that if you're going to make if you're going to make entertaining television, you do need to have some conflict. We can't all be automatons walking around. But at any rate, he he made it happen. And then you 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 take Bennett, who essentially got the baton by people who were saying, you know, Gene's lost his touch. We need to bring cost control back in. We need to make it successful. He does that, creates the way for Gene to come back, and you know everybody won. I think the interesting piece of it, and and I'll let you finish it up with, is how Bennett approached him years later. Yeah, so this is the the final documented exchange between Gene Roddenberry and Harv Bennett. Um, Harv Bennett, he he goes up to Gene Roddenberry and he says, Gene, I've been a sharecropper in your plantation for almost 10 years. I've had a great time, but I'm leaving now. In 10 years, I've never, ever said anything in public that would in any way distress you or reflect badly upon our relationship. Ron Berry admits, that's true. Our Bennett goes on to say, I have listened to everything you've had to say. I have honored you and respected you. I know how much money and profits I've put in my pockets and yours these 10 years. I would really love to see somewhere that Gene Roddenberry said, Harv Bennett did a good job. As I leave... I would really like to feel that I was a member of the Star Trek family, and that only comes if you say so. And Roddenberry says to him, absolutely, of course. But he never did. <laughs> so that's the tragedy of all this. You had these, these, these brilliant creative minds 
just could not come to the table. And, uh, you know, we got Bennett, you know, extending the olive branch there. But, you know, near the end, Roddenberry was kind of rough with everybody, even, you know, him and Nick Meyer and Meyer regrets their last interactions during Star Trek six. And it's uh, it's tough. You know, Roddenberry just he just could not let go of the fact that, you know, Bennett you know, took Star Trek from him. Um, and, you know, even, you know, even during the production of two and three, you know, Roddenberry, you know, he would get, you know, he was the executive consultant. So he'd have to, you know, get the scripts to, you know, approve and whatnot. And he leaked that Spock was going to die. And he leaked that the Enterprise is going to get destroyed. I mean, there was no other way the thing was going to be leaked than than Roddenberry. And it's like, it's just so petty. and It's unfortunate that that's how, that's how it all came out, you know, with all these guys. And, um, I, I often wondered like, man, you know, Star Trek two, three, four, they were so awesome. And, Harv Bennett being a TV guy, like, why didn't they get him back in for, you know, next-gen era stuff, you know, and um, people people had asked Harv Bennett about that, but he actually, he had, he had not, uh, didn't have really any contact with any of the teams there. He knew Rick Berman because he was producer, you know, for next-gen, but that was it. He didn't know Michael Piller. He didn't follow the shows, anything like that. But, um, and I think, I think maybe that was a big reason, you know, if, if, you know, Rick Berman was basically the guy that Gene Roddenberry, you know, passed the baton of Star Trek onto the, that he entrusted his franchise to. And, you know, if he knew how things were between Roddenberry and Bennett, he probably thought it might have been a, I don't know, like a betrayal to Gene Roddenberry to bring Harv Bennett back in. Uh, I mean, that, that's kind of my interpretation. I mean, I don't even know if Harv Bennett would have been interested in coming back at, at that point to, to, to do anything on, on Star Trek. But, you know, we all love what he'd done with the franchise up to that point. So I, I don't know. I think we, you know, in, in a perfect world, these guys would all got along and we would have had all kinds of different shades of Star Trek that could have coexisted together. But creatives, man, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Well, you know, when, when you read the line, the great bird never uttered a kind word about Harv Bennett, a couple of things come to mind. Harv Bennett didn't ask to be involved with Star Trek. Paramount asked him. Um, Harv Bennett mm -hmm. <laughs> was a specialist in what he did, and he was good at it, and, and he took it on with a fervor. And I don't think there was any attempt by him to do anything but make a better product, which is what you do when you're in a leadership role, is you, you find the best people for the job, and, and you have at it. And I have seen that in the business world before, where new person's brought in the person who was running the show now has a new boss the new guy who's or lady right who's coming in she or he may ask a lot of questions as to why people get defensive and then they you know I, i've even seen like bitterness in the front end but when you under when you step back a little bit and you say okay is is she bringing value is he bringing value to the organization is he or she doing it right and this is where, like you were saying about the creatives, and I think one of Roddenberry's greatest flaws is sometimes you just got to step back and recognize that, yes, this, this might have been your creation, but this person, all they did was improve on the product. And ultimately, it's not about Gene Roddenberry, and it's not about Harv Bennett. It's not even about, you know, making tons of money for them. It's about how the fans responded to it. It's about making sure you're doing your job, and that is creating a great piece of entertainment that people can enjoy and escape to. 
And I think that's where a lot of this gets lost. You know, in the real world, we make products that help people. At least I'm, I'm in that business. And I don't ever forget for one second that we're doing something that, that makes a positive difference. These two guys made a very positive difference in a lot of people's lives. But yet they couldn't look at each other and say, hey, look what we've done. Yeah. As a team, look what we've done. The fans love Star Trek. It's as successful a, a, a franchise as there is in history. And yet, Roddenberry couldn't even bring himself to say, you know what, you did a good job. That's tragic. Yeah. On that happy note. <laughs> oh, man, that's... uh. It's tough, man, because you, you want to think, like, you know, it's the same thing when you hear about you know, the, the original series cast not getting along. It's like, oh, man, you know, like not everybody can be not everybody can be the next gen cast. Right. They're the it's great family, lifelong friends, all the stuff. Everybody gets along from top to bottom. And uh, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, that's life. That's people. You know, people are behind all these things. People are behind our entertainment. People are behind all these things we um, we enjoy, you know, and love and and people aren't perfect. You know, and people are going to have arguments and disagreements and whatnot, and and uh, it just it really goes with the territory, especially in that field, and and um, yeah, it, it's 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 a shame, but um, they, you know they say the best art is created through conflict, but I think I think there was just <laughs> there was a lot of unnecessary conflict on top of the normal art conflict through all this, and that's kind of we're getting well, at. the bottom. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to say the the bottom bottom line is they both did it right. In the end, they both did it right, um, and that's and 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 we're we're the better for it. It's just it's just too bad they couldn't see it themselves. That's all. Previously on Trek.fm, the Ready Room. I'd like to see a starship where the chief medical officer is a Tellarite. Oh. <laughs> and see his bedside manner. I'll see. I'll see your. Your crappy Lewis Zimmerman hologram <laughs> right. amalgamation and raise you a Tellarite doctor. Yeah. Uh-huh. The 602 Club. This is such an incredible beachhead in terms of what they do with what we've come to expect now with, like, the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy or resurrecting Peter Cushing. Warp 5. We share about 50% of our DNA with a banana, so I think we're a bit yeah. closer to, to reptiles. Uh, than fifty percent, but still. No, you're, I, yeah, I, so what I you're saying is it's possible to have an intelligent banana. Um, I'm not saying that. I'm just and saying I'm 50% that. Fifty percent banana. To the journey. Bullions don't have a lot of hair that we know of. So I mean, we've never seen a shirtless bullion, have we? Not that I can recall, unless it would be in sick bay or something like that. But I can't recall an incident of a shirtless bullion. <laughs> How do you know that they're not hairy-chested? I kind of love the idea that, like, from the neck down, they're covered in hair, but they're (laughs) bald on top. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well.
If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We also want to thank very, very much our, our esteemed associate producers, Norman C. Lau, Nicholas Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. So Norm, Nick, Tim, Richard, Corey, and Dan, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. It means as much as we can, can possibly tell you uh, the world to us that, that you've agreed to sign on and help keep Standard Orbit alive and well. Yes, thank you so much, guys. We really do appreciate all your contributions. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Standard Orbit. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. As for us personally, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own show called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. What about you, Ken? Hey, you can find me on Twitter as well at BostonSCPO, stands for at Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer. And I'm also on the Babel Conference whenever I can be engaging and trying to add, you know, a lot of good provocative suggestions to our other shows but anyway we look forward to seeing you on the babel conference and responding back and forth on this show as well all right well that's going to do it for us this week but stay tuned next time for another edition of standard orbit <laughs> <laughs>